Uh, thank you. Good to see you, all of you. Uh, my name is Dan, and uh, I am one of the preachers here, and I am preaching today for you. I am glad to see many of you. Many of you, like me, were probably sick this week. We're glad to see that you, like me, are feeling at least somewhat better. We have come to that point in our series on the book of Exodus where we come to Mount Sinai. If you don't know where Mount Sinai is, neither do the scholars, so welcome to the rest of us. Mount Sinai is probably in the south part of the Sinai Peninsula, and it is uh, somewhere between the Red Sea and Israel. And we are there because Israel is going to be encamped there for the next year or so, and we are going to hear about the Ten Commandments. So if you are new, we are glad that you are here. If you are not new, we are also glad that you are here. Please turn in your bulletin or in your Bible to Exodus chapter 20 for the reading of God's Word. And to help us with that, Haley. The reading today comes from Exodus 20, verses 1 to 11. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. This is the word of the Lord. We have seen in the book of Exodus the grandeur of God in His majestic divine essence. We have met God in His godness, God as a consuming fire, God coming in fire and smoke, God a delivering king, moving waters and sending plagues, God as a sovereignly silent God, moving history to His purposes, infinite in wisdom, infinite in power, holy, holy, holy is this God that we have met. And now this God who rules our creation has chosen His people out of the greatness of His stunning mercy, and this God comes to us in this passage in a most unusual way. Follow with me if you've heard these words or something like them before, even recently. I read them out recently. Do you covenant to love Him, comfort Him, honor and keep Him in sickness and in health, for better or for worse, and forsaking all others, do you now covenant to be faithful to Him as long as you both shall live? I do. 
These, of course, are the words of a wedding ceremony. They are the vows of covenant commitment, the vows that take an existing relationship to a whole different level. And these words here are those kinds of words. Because the words of Scripture you have before you, known in Hebrew as the Ten Words, known by us as the Ten Commandments, are ten words that consummate a marriage. Ten words that shaped a nation and indeed all of human history. Ten words that revealed to the world the love language of God. Here in the 20th chapter of Exodus, we get the beginning of a long stay after many, many days of traveling. They're at the foot of Mount Sinai and will be there for about a year. Why a year? Scholars don't know. My best guess is this, because in the Old Testament Jewish culture, after people got married, they were required and allowed to stay together uninterrupted by things such as service for war, by too many life events for about one year. This is the marriage ceremony of God and humanity. And we who are not yet Christian, we are here to observe this marriage ceremony and go, what might this mean for us if we actually get serious about Christianity and indeed become Christians? And we who are Christians, these are the vows to look back on because these are the vows we have made. And these are the vows that are expected of us. God has set his heart and his eyes upon his people. He has heard them. He has answered them in their groaning and slavery. God delivered them out of Egyptian slavery by plagues and by a great Passover. He delivered them out of Egyptian military danger by a parting of a sea. He has fed them by day and night and watered them by a rock. He has called them his people. He here calls them his treasured possession, and he has promised to make them his holy bride. And here at Mount Sinai, in all of his holy splendor, God meets with and communes with his people. He gives us his ten words to make covenant with us, for he loves us. This theologians call the Mosaic Covenant. This New Testament writers call the covenant ceremony as the giving of the law. But this, ladies and gentlemen, is a love story. And this is a marriage ceremony. And we, we who have come to the know this God by faith in his son Jesus, we are given these words as holy vows to live by as his beloved treasured possession, as his bride. We call them the Ten Commandments, but to us they are holy vows, not just historical documents. We are called to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and these words tell us how. They are a guide, they are a guard, and they are a goad. They are a guide as to how to love God. They are guardrails to help us from falling away, and they are a goad to prod us back to that love when we do fall away. Today we will look at the first four of these commandments. These are the vows we make to love God Himself. 
And these are worth a thousand sermons. You may look them up. You will get far better ones. I simply offer you a simple summary with three basic ideas. And they are these. Implicit in these four is this idea, don't replace God. Implicit and explicit in these vows is a second idea, don't reduce God. And explicit in the final of these and implicit in the rest is a third, rest in God. Don't replace God. Don't reduce God. Rest in God. Don't replace God, verses 2 through 4. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved, carved image or any likeness of anything in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Here, God gives concrete granular shape to what he wants from his covenant people. So he says to them, and here scholars have noted he is not speaking through Moses, he is speaking directly to all the people of Israel. Now if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you may have noticed that I took the first two commandments and I put them into one point. And I have. If you are theologically fairly well-read, you will know that these two first commandments are considered by some Christian communions to be one commandment because they thematically tie together. I am from the tradition that makes them into two, but I am also of the opinion that they are thematically linked, and I get why they get to be put together. I will now make a statement that I think is helps us understand why, because scholars from all kinds of traditions agree with this. The first command is, in fact, the summarizing command and may be seen as the only command that encompasses all the others, and that is this. I am the Lord thy God, and thou shalt have no other gods before my face in my sight. That is a summary, I think, of all ten of the words. Every command afterward is either some explicit version of the first or violating any other command is also a violation of the first, as Martin Luther would say. This first command is a command to absolute spousal loyalty. Men and women, God the only God is the only God. There is no other. And he and he alone shall be treated as God. He is the Lord our God. We shall have no other gods before his face. Not Buddha. Not Allah. Not Baal. Not your bank account. Or your Instagram account. Not your parents not your children, not your resume, not your relationships, nothing and nobody. No other gods. The true God who knows all and sees all and hears all and reads all, every thought, every desire of ours, it says, 
is a jealous God. Jealousy here is defined in the most beautiful and fierce way. It's the jealous love of a spouse who is in love with their spouse and wants their love to love no other. That is the jealousy of an infinitely holy, jealous God. That is the first and in some sense only command. You will have no other gods before me. The second command gives some detailed expression to this. You will fashion no idols out of wood or stone, and you shall certainly not bow down and worship those idols. You shall not even make a figure that represents the true God to worship him or it. Now, scholars have pointed out that Israel at this point has not done this second violation. They've never, as far as history can tell, made other gods or really worshipped other gods or even really been tempted to. But Old Testament scholar Victor, Victor Hamilton makes a relevant point in his commentary. Although Israel found Egypt's gods irrelevant, they will find Canaan's gods irresistible. Why? Because once the people are established, begin to put down roots, get a taste of the good life and prosperity that goes with it, then maybe other gods begin to appear attractive. Indeed. What Hamilton is suggesting is that humans, when in places of affliction and suffering and longing, tend not to abandon the true God, but give us wealth, give us affluence, give us comfort, and give us pleasure, and we will be tempted to abandon our belief in God or at least add to it the quiet worship and reverence for other things. We are constantly tempted, are we not? by the siren songs of wealth and comfort and reputation and security, by the thrill of changing society and making a name for ourselves, are we not guilty, not of fashioning ancient gods with wood and stone, but by creating deep affections in the dark corridors of our heart toward those things that give us those things? Mine does. It craves comfort, it craves control, it craves respect. How about you? This God is our God, and He loves us like a fierce spouse loves their wife. And He says, you shall have no other lovers before my face, because other gods means spiritual adultery. So how do we do this? <sighs> Great question. Thank, I want to thank me for asking that question. <laughs> I'm going to give you some tips. I don't know if they'll help you, but they have helped me. Firstly, get to know the spouse that you're marrying. My wife and I spend time every day multiple moments every day communicating, talking, clarifying things, getting on the same page with things, figuring out how to parent our daughter together. It's a, it's a daily routine, and it's a daily reinfusion of our connectedness and our love. Every day we communicate. Every day we realign. Do the same with God. Show that you love Him 
by your daily communication, realignment, hear from Him, speak to Him, read about His love, experience His grace, pray your needs to Him every day. I know it's crazy, isn't it? But can you imagine going, getting married and then spending your honeymoon and not talking for a couple days? That'd be a bad honeymoon. It'd be a bad marriage. This is a marriage. Get to know God. Every Sunday, have a date with Him. How's the date going? You're listening to me, so not so great, I know. Every Sunday, God invites you to put aside all that distracts you all of the week and come and spend time with Him. Worshiping Him, communing with Him, feeling His love, experiencing His grace. Have a date weekly with your spouse. Read great books about the great God whom you have married. Read The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Knowing Christ by Mark Jones. Other great books. Gentle and Lowly by Ortland comes to mind. And of, of course, read his book. His great love poem to you. Here you will find love that you cannot imagine. Love that you cannot deserve. Love that you cannot fathom, but love that changes you. And you, who were once alienated and hostile to God, in mind, doing evil deeds, God has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before his face. Meditate on that every day. Get to know the spouse you're married. Secondly, get to know those who would tempt you away from the true God, who is your love. Know the false gods that most attract you. Ask yourself, what's in my daydreams when I let my mind wander? Just before I go to bed, what do I start thinking about? Just before I consciously start to organize my mind, where does my mind go? And then you will begin to know what tempts you. What tempts you? Know it. Know why. Be a student of yourself. Then start to pray against those things. And then give yourself to be accountable to others to help you with those things. I told several of my best friends when I was single exactly the issues that I most struggled with and I had them ask me about them. I have them ask me about them 27 years into my marriage because I want to love my wife the way she deserves and I want to love my God the way he deserves. Spend time understanding what tempts you to commit spiritual adultery. Hold yourself accountable and fight the good fight. Finally, decide to prioritize God with your schedule and with your money. Uh, my wife and I sit down and we decide this is how much we're making, therefore we're going to take this percent 
Uh, it's more than 10%, by the way, and we're going to find ways to give it away. And we organize our budget based on what we have after we've decided to give what we will, which is more than 10% of gross. Because if you want to be blessed gross, give gross. If you want to be blessed net, give net. Your decision, your folly, you go ahead. And may I say on behalf of the church, we appreciate the fact that we're $400,000 behind. We were this way last year. Last year you rallied and gave us the most epic December we've ever had. As a matter of fact, on December 25th, we were still $300,000 behind where we ended up, and we got over $300,000 after December 25th. On December 25th, at Christmas, I was trying to figure out which staff we would probably have to lay off because you had waited. On January 1st, we were able to rejoice, and I was able to say thank you. And so today I say thank you for last year, and I hate you for last year. Don't do this anymore. I know that many of you get your bonuses late, and then you give late. I can't control that, and we understand that. But you can do better about making your choices earlier to prioritize your lover, God, and making it happen in your budget. So we don't have to thank you on January 1st and hate you all the rest of the year. I don't really hate you, but boy, you give me gray hairs. <laughs> Thomas Watson, the Puritan pastor, wrote these words in a book, The Godly Man's Picture. He said, a humble Christian studies their own infirmities and studies another excellencies. Don't replace God. Revere God. Secondly, don't reduce God. I'm going to start again with that second one. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children, the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. You can ask that question in the Q&A about that. I can tell you how little I know. And then the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now, I'm repeating the second in command and joining you with the third, not to thoroughly confuse you, although by now you might feel that way. I'm doing it for a reason, because there's something about this second command that's intriguing. It's not the obvious prohibition about making and worshiping false gods. We talked about that. Don't replace God. It's in the subtle pr prohibition here of treating God like any other god, because the gods of the Canaanites, the other gods that are in view here, were partial deities. They were local gods. They were gods of fertility and, and gods of crops, gods of rain and food and sky and health. They had specific areas of responsibility and were seen as local and limited. And if you built them out of wood and stone and worship them in their place, you were actually creating a, an idea of God that was local, limited, particular, and instrumental. You could use that God when you needed that God. So if you had trouble with children, you would sacrifice to the God of fertility until you got children. After you had three or four, you wouldn't even worry about that God, but you'd move over to the God of crops and health. 
And you see what happens is you begin, you begin this practice of conceptualizing God as an instrument that I go to when I have needs that need to be filled. He's my spiritual supermarket that I go to when I need X, Z, and G. It's a way of thinking about God that reduces Him. He's some kind of need filler, some kind of spiritual supermarket owner. When I need something I cannot get by myself, God is no longer the great I am. He is no longer the ruler of the universe, and I am His instrument to do as He pleases for His glory. He is my instrument to get what I want for mine. The real capital G God that I am serving now is me. And men and women, I don't care where you are in your journey of faith, Christian, non-Christian, and anywhere in between, don't get me wrong, this is us. And God says, then stop it. Don't do it. And the, the prohibition of taking the name of God in vain flows into that instrumental way of thinking about God. This command is confusing. It's translated, my goodness, I think I read 15 different ways of understanding it with 15 different English translations. The, es the essence of it seems to be this. Using the name of God for improper purposes, probably in making vows you will not actually intend to follow through with, or using Him to describe something or prove the truthfulness of a statement you're making that you are using manipulatively because the statement is simply to persuade, not to proclaim truth. It is using the name of God dishonestly and inappropriately and manipulatively to get something. The name of God is an instrument for you. Men and be hallowed with our tongues and not just our thoughts. God's name is to be revered, not to be reduced to a swear word or a wonder word or a manipulative word. God is God. He cannot be reduced, and to do so dishonors Him infinitely and unimaginably. unimaginably. Our tongues, as expressions of our thoughts and desires, do they honor God? James 3 says they don't far too often. We all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what they say, they are perfect, able to bridle their whole body. But how great a forest is set ablaze by a small fire, and the tongue is a fire. It is a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set amongst our other physical members of our body, but it stains the whole, sets on fire the entire course of our life. With our tongues we bless our Lord and our Father, and with it we curse people who are made in God's image. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. These things ought not to be so. What this seems to be getting at is this. Don't reduce God to anything less than He is. He's the God of the universe, the Lord of creation, and we should set Him apart as God with our worship, with our words, with our tongues, with our all. A few quick applications here. Go to God with everything. Make it a practice to go to God with every aspect of your life. 
your physical life, your spiritual life, your emotional life, your financial life, your vocational life, your relational. Write all the key areas of your life down and pour over them in prayer with God regularly. Make Him not the supermarket of your present need. Make Him the sovereign of your every part. Go to God with everything and therefore submit to God in everything because not everything goes your way as you think it should. You are God's instrument for His glory and His glory will include your frustrations. Your suffering, your friend's cancer, your sister's infertility, losing jobs, many other tragic things. These are things that happen in a universe run by a sovereign God. We have to learn to submit to Him in those things. Though they be difficult beyond recognition, they are ours beyond all doubt to submit to. Don't replace God. Don't reduce God. But finally, do rest in God. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or daughter, your servant, male or female, your livestock, or the sojourner who rests within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. God has made time sacred. He has made a day, a holy day. He has made a day, a day in the midst of every week for you to escape time and enter eternity by communing, by communing with the eternal God. He has made a day, a day for everyone to meet with the only one truly worth meeting. He has made a day, a day for resting, refreshing, relaxing and remaking you into the image of Him. We've now come to the one commandment that nobody seems to practice. <laughs> Why? Because we are Scrooges with our time. We, may, we, we waste so much time on everything that means nothing that we seem to have no time for the God who means everything. We are so busy doing, we have no time to do that which is the most important doing, the most helpful, refreshing, and transforming doing, which is resting. Stop doing, rest, trust, release, refresh in the goodness, the grace, the love, and the sovereignty of God. God wants a day of rest and refreshment and worship and wonder. He wants 
I'm going to reduce this terribly, but just to try and make it a little more accessible, God is saying, I want a date night. Actually, I want a date day, a whole day, every week. Every week, a whole day. Who do you think you are? I am the one God who is the only God who is. And you shall have no rivals before my face. In the Christian tradition, Sabbath means, well, there's way too much. This, this could be a series of talks. So I will lightly summarize how to rest in God. At least three profound things the Christian tradition has said this means. Firstly, rest from your work. That's the obvious one. Men and women, you go to work, even if your work is studying, and your work is a grind. It just is. There's no getting around that. All the lip services we give in this generation of, oh, just follow your passions. Keep working. You'll get over that silly cultural meme right now. All I tell you, even for people who are working in a field that they are very passionate about, work is a grind. I should know. I'm in one of those professions. Ask anyone who went into ministry. They didn't go into it for the money. I know, you laugh. <laughs> they do it for the opportunity to follow their passions. We do. And we need to tell you, being in ministry is a grind. Preaching is a grind. Shepherding you guys is a real grind. You guys listening to and following us is an incomprehensible to me grind. It's hard. Work is a grind. But work gives you money, which gives you access to every idol that tempts your heart. And so we give to work our heart far too often. And what God says is, rest from your work to break its idolatrous power in you, to break its power to begin to define you, and then to swallow you up. Stop doing work. Rest. That is the substance, and not the whole, but it is a big part of what Sabbath means. Secondly, though, and the book of Hebrews is the one that really clues us in, don't just rest from your work. Rest from your works. What he means there is the works that we do to make ourselves in our minds worthy of God's pleasure. We are by nature self-righteous beings. We want to earn our glory. We want to be worthy of praise. We want, when it comes to God, to have him say, well done, you deserve my praise. We grind for God's approval. But I told you earlier that the 10 words, the 10 commandments are a guide, a guard, and a goad. And here I want you to understand this more deeply. They guide us. They tell us how to love God. They're his love language. Christians have always used them that way. They have always used them as well as guardrails. These are the areas like a swimming pool. You know, no shoes in the pool. No this in the pool. No, no eating before, etc., etc. These are the guardrails to keep you safe. And Christians have always seen these Ten Commandments as boundaries for us not to cross. But in making them a guide and a guardrail, a temptation arises when the guide and the guardrail intersect with the heart that wants 
to be glorified. Our hearts take these two ideas and turn them into thinking, I can earn God's love if I follow these. And that is the great temptation the Jewish people fell into. Instead of making these ways a ways of responding to God's love and grace, they turned them into a way of earning God's love and pleasure and boasting. And thus, the third use of the law of God, it is a goad, a prod to awaken us to the reality of our own hearts. Listen to Romans 3. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may be held accountable to God for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. There it is. Men and women, the law is a mirror to show us our own failure to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It is a goad goading us to stop resting in our own works and righteousness, stop trusting in our own goodness to earn God's pleasure. Romans 3 continues, there's no distinction. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but are justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Hebrews 4 says, if you have entered into God's rest, you have rested from your works. What does that mean? It means Jesus did your work for you. He came. And as a human rabbi, but God himself, he loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He obeyed him perfectly. He had no other gods before the face of his father. He loved him infinitely. Hebrews 4 continues and says, Since we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, let us hold fast our confession. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Tempted he was as we are, but sin he did not as we have done. He was innocent, and then he gave his life for you and for me. The bridegroom sent his son, who is the bridegroom, who gave his life to purchase his bride and by his blood paid the debt for our sin that we might find God's grace and love. And we are called to rest in that grace and that love. Practical applications. It's Saturday night. You have a decision. You have a great opportunity to go somewhere. Tiff is calling. The clubs are calling. The movies are calling. And God is quietly calling you to get ready to meet with him. Choose how to organize Saturday night that you might enjoy Sunday morning with him. Prepare your heart before you come to meet with him who calls you to come so that you may come and be refreshed and be renewed. Come. Come early. 
come prepared. Pray and open your heart. And then when done, invite others into your worship and your communion and your fellowship. Make Sunday a day of rejoicing. God has come to be our bridegroom to marry us. Jesus is our bridegroom who died for us. And now we're called to give our lives to him as a response. For the love of Christ controls us. We have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and was raised again. Let us pray. Father, help us. Help us for whom you died to die to ourselves. Help us for whom you rose to rise anew as people who live to love you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.